Chapter 20 The Return Voyage Home Sunday, 2 August 1970 U.S. Naval Station Guantanamo Bay, Cuba 2100 The card pulled away from the nest that allowed the other ships to move out. She spent the night anchored in the bay. Monday, 3 August 1970 U.S. Naval Station Guantanamo Bay, Cuba 0400 Reveille was piped. All hands except those coming off the 0400 watch hopped out of their racks and began taking care of the early morning personal preparations. Mr. Winthrop assumed the OOD duties on the quarterdeck. 0415 The shipboard intercom came to life. Now turn two. Scrub down weather decks, sweep down all compartments, empty all trash cans. Now sweepers. 0545 The boats keyed the 1MC and made the announcement. Now all hands make preparations for getting underway. The ship will shift from shore power to ship power in five minutes. At the end of the five-minute time period, the quartermaster counted down the seconds. The shift was made without a glitch. 0600. Now set the special sea and anchor detail. The maneuvering watch will lay to the bridge. 0640. Now the officer of the day has shifted his watch from the quarterdeck to the flying bridge. 0655. The final getting underway was given. Now hoist the anchor. The anchor was raised and cleared the water. Anchor's away, sir, Ken report from the quartermaster. Very well, Mr. Winthrop acknowledged. Mr. Winthrop? The captain's voice was low and there was a hint of melancholy. Mr. Winthrop turned to face the captain. Yes, captain? The captain breathed out slowly. There was a pause. Then in the same low voice he said, Take us home. Aye, aye, sir. The captain in the O.O.D. expressed what every sailor on board was thinking. In the same frame of mind. Glad to be going home. But there was that cognitive dissonance of on the one hand mission accomplished and on the other sadness at the loss of shipmates and a gaping wound in a ship that they have come to love. The anchor was properly skewered by the deckhands on the U.S.S. card. The boats and mate of the watch blew a long whistle blast passed the word to shift colors. The jack and the ensign were hauled down smartly, and the steaming ensign was hoisted on the gaff, and the ship's call sign was hoisted. Now the ship was settled into a typical, gentle Caribbean swell, gently swaying and moving forward with its usual metallic sounds and vibrations as if nothing had happened. Robert Mills peered down from the bridge over the damaged windscreen onto the forecastle area, moving his gaze along the ruptured number two gun mount and the ragging edges of the gaping hole that was once the card's prized number one gun mount. He was feeling her pain as his own. She was hurt, but not crippled. Poor girl, she doesn't deserve this. She was showing signs of wear and survival, like those who served on her. Every member of the card's family felt as if she was glad to leave all of this behind and go home. He turned his attention aft to the ensign that fluttered from the gaff. She was still flaunting her colors. He recalled what he told the Coast Guard captain just a few months ago. She was a fine old bucket in her day and she needed to go out in style into a red sunset with her ensign flying, her crew standing in pride. Well, he thought, she made a good showing. She may be relieved from service when she gets home, but she's going home, wearing the scars of battle 
and carrying a victorious crew, riding home with pride. The captain could not get the sight of the Cuban vessel out of his mind. He played the memory again and again, the ragged pieces of steel, the black smoke, the way it stood on end and slid quietly into the ocean. She was once a vital, living creature, a way of life for the sailors who manned her, now a place of permanent rest to those who slept in her damaged hull beneath the sea. The scene on his own ship was constantly invaded his mind. The sight of the lethal shell heading for his ship, hitting the forward gun mount and ripping apart two of his crew, not just any two, but a special two, who found a greater reason for their attachment to the USS Card. He witnessed another shipmate being killed and others suffering horrendous injuries. Killed in action. It was a difficult thing to consider. Three of your own. Smitty was a good lad. Vincent and Phelps, for there were two seamen who were killed in battle that should have never happened. They were Robbie and Brenny. Two young people who were just going through life until they found each other on board this ship. It seemed like a waste. It was the sacrifice of three lives, and for what purpose? And yet, he thought, in times of defense against the forces of evil, no sacrifice is in vain. No matter how great or small, he recalled something he read once. It matters not when a man dies or where, but that is at a post of duty and honor. His mind dwelled on his crew. The crew was different somehow, toughened, more confident perhaps. A feeling of camaraderie and oneness now held them together by their trade and their recent experiences, their loyalty to the ship and to each other. Time and distance, hours and days, spent in every sort of condition, had all left their mark on the crew. They had come a long way from where they were when the captain came on board just six months ago. When the voyage was over, he will be replaced by another commander. His job completed. He had received his orders in January, a six-month temporary assignment to the USS Card, beginning in February. He had six months to bring the card up to combat readiness and join the squadron for combat readiness exercises in Guantanamo Bay in July. He had worked on many temporary assignments as an organizational consultant with private industry and in his capacity as a reserve officer in the Organizational Development Division of the Navy Department. He knew going in this would be a different or more difficult assignment. He had never had command of a ship, and while he assisted in helping sick organizations get well, he could walk away when the assignment was over. He could walk away from this one as well, but this time it was different. This time it was personal. He had talked about shipmates and organizational cohesiveness. He understood what that meant, but this time it was different. This time it was personal. This was not just another organization, not just another ship that needed investigative prowess or an organizational development skills. Captain Sorensen realized this ship and this crew did not need a consultant. They did not need an executive. They did not need a manager. They did not need a leader. They needed a captain. They needed someone who could invest himself into this operation, someone who could understand this was a living, breathing organization in need of a steward, and could be not just the one in charge, but the one who is personally responsible, personally involved, the one in command. And involved he was. 
this was his ship. This was his crew, his shipmates, his problem, his family, his responsibility, his command. Command is one thing, but responsibility, the duty to those who depend on you, is the greater burden. It is a burden that only a captain can bear, a burden that must be felt, not just dealt with, a burden one must take personally. The captain made a tour of the ship. He began his trip in the engine room, then up the next level, walking forward on one deck and aft on the other, looking into every compartment, making eye contact with every sailor he saw, saying nothing, just nodding with a smile of approval to each one. No one spoke, but smiled and nodded in return. His tour completed, the captain informed the bridge that he would be in his stateroom. It was not going to be an easy task and it was one that he had never had to do before. Write letters to the families of those warriors who had fallen in battle. Before writing the letters, he thought it would be best to catch up on the ship's log regarding the encounter with the pirates. Perhaps this would help him find the words to put into those letters. That done, he was still unable to face the next of kin. He turned his attention to the report to Sinclat Fleet and Comrades Desron. He had been at it for an hour or more. When he heard the announcement over the 1MC, Captain Mills, your presence is respectfully requested on the fantail. The bridge knew he was in his cabin. Why announce it ship-wide instead of using the intercom? He leaned back in his chair, squeezed his eyes with his thumb and his forefinger, gave a sigh. He stood up, placed his hat on his head, and exited the cabin door. Passed Radio Central, through the door leading to the ladder that would take him to the main level. Once through the door, he had a clear view of the O2 level. Behind the stack, the ship's company and those sailors permanently assigned to the card were peering down on the fantail. He took the ladder to the main level and walked along the outer weather deck to the fantail. All the sailors who had come on board in Norfolk and Mayport were standing at quarters in starched dress whites. There was a pathway between the ranks. At the end of that pathway, standing with his back to the ensign, was the ship's doctor. As the captain approached the doctor, the doctor saluted. Captain Mills returned the salute. What is this all about, doctor? Sir, the reserves that came on board in Norfolk and Mayport request permission to stay with the ship to the home port rather than be put off where we came aboard. We want to be there when our shipmates that died in battle are delivered home. We realize that as reserves, we're only here for a two-week training cruise and not considered to be part of the crew. But in view of all that we've faced together with the card ship's company, we feel a kinship to the crew and the ship and to those who were killed in battle. Dr. Johnson, he began. Then he paused and turned his attention to the reserves that had come aboard in Norfolk and Mayport. In their starch white uniforms, their looks of resolve. The sailors were serious. He turned to look at the card's reserves and regular ship's company standing around the O2 level. They, too, were in starch, dress-white uniforms. All you reserves that came aboard in Norfolk and Mayport, and you, the reserves and the regulars of the card ship's company. This goes for all of you. There is a saying in the maritime service that is as old as Solomon. You cannot be a part of the crew until you're part of the ship. It is clear to me that every sailor here is part of the ship, and the ship has become a part of you. He paused as he gathered his thoughts. The only sound was the steady drawn of the ship's engines and the bubbling of the sea in the wake of the screws that propelled the card toward its journey home. The captain cleared his throat and continued. 
The community that exists on board a maritime vessel is a close-knit community. Shipmates are a community unto itself more than any you will find on shore, and it's doubly true on board a naval ship, where lives depend on each other. It comes about when those on board respect certain customs and traditions, rules of conduct and responsibilities. That, coupled with mutual trust among the crew, that comes when each person is committed to performing their duties for the good of the ship and their shipmates. There was another pause as the captain took a deep breath. Then once again, facing the crew, he continued, The events of the past two weeks we have faced together. We are all shipmates. He turned to face the doctor. Your request is granted, doctor. You have earned it. A rousing cheer was raised in every sailor on board. The captain did an about-face and walked briskly forward up the ladder to the O2 level and back into his cabin. That's our skipper, said one of the regular Navy sailors standing on the O2 level. He is a man. He's not just an officer. He has stated aloud what every sailor was thinking. This captain would lead them anywhere. Look where we are with the odds against us. We were the carp, the tuna, the chicken of the sea. Now look at what we've become. Captain Mills had us make plans, then work those plans, not just plans for dealing with the expected or the war games, but he had us make plans for the unexpected. We survived the storm of the century, a storm that sank a ship with a regular Navy crew. We faced difficult fleet-wide drills and had qualified right along with the regular Navy ships. We had faced an actual enemy bent on our destruction. We engaged and prevailed. Command, leadership, authority, these are not mere words. The person who carried them had to embody those traits, had to earn the right to employ them through a personal commitment, not just to the mission, but to the people assigned to that mission. The card and its crew had not only faced adversaries of opponents attacking them in realistic scenario, and the unleashing of Mother Nature in one of the most horrendous storms in the century, they faced the unbelievable horror of a real enemy bent on their destruction. The card had yet another onslaught to face. Just off the coast of South Carolina, a great storm surrounded them, and the dark clouds, lightning and thunder, heavy rain like a giant fire hose, with full force churning and thrashing the sea that threatened with vengeance. The ship's crew watched this fearsome storm as it circled the craft. What an awesome, frightening, yet wonderful and immaculate vision to behold was holding back the evil forces of fate. This deluge circled without touching them or disturbing the ship or the water in which it moved, and suddenly it ran off over the horizon and disappeared. The Dark Before the Dawn Monday, 3 August 1970, CBS Newsroom, New York, New York, 0700. This is Joe Franklin, CBS Morning News. The Cuban ambassador has filed an official protest against the United States over what they call an act of aggression against the Cuban government, when on Friday the 31st of July, a U.S. Navy destroyer attacked and sank a Russian-made Cuban Navy corvette in the Caribbean Sea, 100 miles west of Dominica. The Cubans are demanding reparations for the loss of their warship, claiming that they were attacked without provocation. They are also demanding the arrest of the captain of the USS Card and handed over to face murder and piracy charges. The Cuban ambassador claims he has a film and evidence of the attack. The American ship came from the Navy base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. We will continue to follow this story. Tuesday, 4 August 1970. White House. Office of the President. 1300. The President's secretary entered the Oval Office with a stack of files. 
each one displaying the seal of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Here are the files you requested, Mr. President. Thank you, Barbara. Sir, the Secretary of State is waiting outside. Send him in. The President remained seated behind his desk. The Secretary of State stood near the desk for a few minutes, waiting for the President to invite him to be seated. His face and general posture clearly communicated his total disdain for the man at the desk. And the fact that he was summoned to the office, no doubt to seek his help in getting out of this mess with the Cubans. And now the Russians are getting involved. Don't bother sitting down, Bill. This won't take long. I have here FBI files and Navy CSI files. Do you know that Captain Mills had an audio and film recordings of the entire event? The Secretary's demeanor did not change. Yes, Mr. President, Bernard Riggins took them into custody. There is only one copy, and Mr. Riggins has analyzed them. And he shared them with the Cuban ambassador? I understand he did, yes. Did you know the entire event was overheard on the radio by the commanders of Res Des Ron 34 and Res Des Div 5 and the chief of Atlantic Naval Forces and their immediate staff? The secretary began to show some anxiety, but said nothing. Bill, you campaigned against the Navy base at Gitmo. It was your feature point on the campaign. You accused the Navy of violating the peace in the Caribbean and harassing the Cubans. Did you think this incident would embarrass me and convince the American people that you were right, that I was wrong? Don't bother to answer that, but here is a question you will answer. The secretary shifted his weight, and his expression began more defiant. He was not going to help this president out of this one. This incident will give him the leverage he needs for the next presidential race. Bill, did you know that Bernard Riggins gave the Cubans an edited film showing only the card sinking the Cubans and taking a crew? The secretary's demeanor changed. Fear overtook him. He had not counted on this. He knew Riggins had fudged documents before in order to secure the results he wanted to favor the boss, but he could not believe he would go this far. Uh, no, Mr. President, I had no idea. Did you know the Cuban ship was under the command of pirates? That was not confirmed, Mr. President. Perhaps you and your Mr. Riggins counted on there being only one set of pictures and films. I have a copy of the unedited version and an audio tape of the whole bloody affair. The President pressed a button under the desk and three very large Secret Service agents entered the Oval Office. Bernard Riggins has been arrested. He will stand trial, and I am sure he will spend a great deal of time in prison. His associate, Richard Mikulski, has turned state's evidence against Mr. Riggins. The secretary nervously glanced at his Secret Service agents, then back to the president. I will be holding a press conference in two hours. At that time, I will tell the citizens of the United States what really happened out there. I will tell them that I have released to all the news networks the film and the audio recordings of the incident. Malcolm Breckinridge, the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., has handed over copies of the film, still pictures, and the audio, and the captain's report to the Cuban and Russian ambassadors. Mr. President, I had no idea. I, I suppose you want my resignation. No, Bill. At the news conference, I'm going to announce that I have fired you for your part in this mess. Mr. President, surely a person in my position should be allowed to resign with some dignity. I, c I can simply say, I want to spend more time with my family. A person in your position who has done what you did should be arrested and prosecuted. If I had undisputable proof that you knew what Reggins was up to, I'd have you arrested. 
you have betrayed your president. You have betrayed your office. And even more egregious, you betrayed the citizens of the United States. Mr. President, you, you can't be serious. I have given my life to public service. You can't let a superlative career end this way. We will not argue whether your career has been superlative or not, or whether you served the public or the public served you. But yes, your career will end this way, and it will end now, in two hours. I had nothing to do with the misleading the Cubans or, the, or, 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 or what Regans was doing. I sent him down there to collect information. He had no orders to fabricate a story that would embarrass the United States. Gentlemen, escort this man to his office and stand by while he cleans out his desk and make sure he leaves the building. Chapter 20 Executive Assessment When Sabotage Caused the Turbulence If the turbulence was the fault of someone in the organization, whatever it was, due to personal gain or malevolence, they need to be publicly exposed and prosecuted. The public needs to be informed of the action they take in order to restore the public's faith and protect the integrity of its management and its future associations. The perpetrator should not be allowed to resign. They must be fired, prosecuted, and sued to recover any assets they stole or destroyed. I worked with a manufacturing company in late 1970s who chose this course of action with several of its management personnel. The company was finding it difficult to recruit good people. What management discovered was that the third shift had become a den of iniquity with gambling, promiscuous sexual activities, and drugs. To be sure, the president hired an undercover detective to work the shift and gather information as to what was going on and who was responsible. He discovered several hourly employees were orchestrating the activities with the full knowledge of several supervisors and the shift superintendent, who also played no small part in its goings-on. When sufficient evidence had been acquired, the company president authorized the police to enter the plant and arrest all those who were guilty. The raid was conducted under the watchful eye of one of the local television news camera crews. The president issued a public statement and the organization reputation was again restored. The higher the position, the greater the stewardship obligation. The higher the position, the greater the accountability. The higher the position, the greater the faith others give. The higher the position, the greater the damage when unfaithfulness is discovered. After action learning too. There are always restless seas in one's life. Everyone will encounter stormy seas. Some are more frightening than others. In troubled times in one's professional or personal life, security is being affected by evil outside forces of heathen competition or decisions of government. Under any turbulent circumstances, the one in command must stand resolute in the face of adversity and in the presence of those who report and take charge. This is no time to abandon ship.